out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Good afternoon. It is day 26 of 100 Days with Colin. I just wanted to let everybody know that, uh, guess what? Trump's going to be in Texas. He either is in Texas and South Texas doing a rally, uh, but I know that Governor Greg Abbott won't be there. I'm looking for information on Twitter. Just kind of Trump in Texas. I'm just going to try to find it. Let's see here. Hold rally in Texas. He's going to be here on the 22nd. Ah, there it is. 22nd at 7 p.m. And he's going to be somewhere. The venue's going to be in Robstown. So we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. I'll tell you what, though. Um, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with Texas politics today because they arrested a woman in South Texas. I knew it was going to happen. They, they arrested a woman, a young woman, 26-year-old. Um, girl by the name of Herrera. Herrera. Too many R's some days. <laughs> I trip up my R's. Um, and uh, NPR said it better than I did. Sorry. And I wanted to say that I don't, I don't really, I'm kind of shocked and struck by it. They haven't arrested a woman for a, a, aborting her own child yet. I think the law provides that the exception, if you are the mother terminating the pregnancy, it's it's if you're a doctor administrating the medical facility. That's what you can go to jail for, and that's what you face a hundred thousand dollar fine for. Um, but women now in Texas are apparently being arrested for self-administrating abortions, and that's today's news. I feel I feel really struck by it. Um, uh, I needed to say I have said that I am both pro-life and pro-choice. I mean, pro-life for myself, meaning like I would not abort a child that I, from an unintentional pregnancy. Uh, but that doesn't seem to matter to some people. They seem to want to enforce the means of reproduction and get the government to play heavy towards women through the nine-month tour of their pregnancy. I just wanted to indicate for listeners who are out there that pregnancy is an extremely invasive experience and, you know, you're full of baby. You know, you're dealing with baby and then, of course, everybody seems to think it's their business. You're, you're being inhabited on the inside by another human being. That's what's happening. A small person has invaded your your body. And so when other people outside of you begin to start dictating towards you about the person living inside of you, it's doubly invasive. So privacy is so important for all pregnant women. And what I've discovered today is that Apple... Apple, if you ever used an Apple iWatch, and this is before I get into the reading today, I just want to tell you what's top of mind. Uh, Apple iWatch has been uh, collecting body information, biometric information, so that it can start its own insurance game, medical insurance game. So medical information and biometric medical information is being collected by Apple by people who wear Apple watches and they were encouraged to you know do their steps counting and take their blood pressure and do all of those things and you know people freely ponied up that information people have also done strange things with their DNA information with 23andMe now whether or not I am I approve of it you know, some women are like, well, you know, it may have gone into the database, but it solved crime that one time or that two times. It solved crime. 
And so now they think that that is a precedent for, you know, over license to use DNA for all things indefinitely in a pre-criminal privatized database, not owned by the government, but within the government's reach with a bit of coin. It's a coin-operated business for the government. So, um, so they just plunk in the coin, they get the DNA, and then, you know, the FBI th seems to think that that's, that's really easy for them. You know, it's supposed to be protected health information, but not if it's research. See, that's the loophole. And one of these days, we got to have a show on the medical research loophole that impacts privacy right now. So, um, best thing to do is uh, forgive yourself, forgive others, uh, and you can also withdraw your, your medical information, the license of your medical information uh, from 23andMe if you, ever, if you ever went there and did that. Um, I just want to make it generally aware that they're pretty, they're pretty, they're pretty workable. And if they give you a hard time, call me. Let me know. I'd love to talk to you. Show me the emails because that's exactly the kind of stuff we want to know. All right. So without further ado, I've spoken for a whole six minutes on stuff I want to talk about. Um, I changed my profile pic to indicate that as this last few days of this election cycle become, you know, increasingly torrid and burny, and flamy and filled with whatever. Um, so Jonathan is with me. He's added a few things in the chat here. It says, back to the anger farm. Abortion is big government making it illegal. Yeah, I think, I think that's just too much government for me. I know I live in Texas. That's okay. I'm from here. I get to, I get to be mean about it, and I don't have to agree with everything. Texas does. Just because it's the state I live in doesn't mean I have to agree with everything that happens here. Okay? And that's the, that's the same of everybody who lives in every state. Uh, I made a choice because I, you know, of the things that cause me to feel a decency and freedom, you know, I'm not in the throes of an unintentional pregnancy at the moment. Okay? And if I were, I would have handled it very very smartly because I'm a smart lady um, and I can handle my big girl pants problems uh, but what I will say is that there are more important things to me not being crowded by corporatist interests not being dictated to not being constantly intimidated by leftist communists not being hounded by crazy people, not being mobbed by weirdo leftist Canadians, you know, those are things that were just really, really encroaching, invasive, the entitled electronic environment uh, where people were grabbing for all sorts of information. I guess you could call it a virtual pregnancy. They wanted to get up in there and be in there always on all the time. And of course, the answer was always no. And in, no, in that environment is really demanding. It's super exhausting, and you do feel like you're covered in fleas if you're me. Now, other people don't have a sensitivity about it. They've got cameras always on at their desk, watching everything they do, and little spiders tracking every orifice of everything that they ever do at work. You know, they've got three devices on them at all times, telling on them everywhere they go. They report back to their employer, their tech employer, which is probably Meta or Amazon at any given time. And then by that, by that point, the corporation that you work for knows your blood type. And it, it is really, really confining. I just want you to know, because you can't always know and control who sees that information and has that information. Once they get you that assiduously, They've got you like a prisoner. It is like a free-range prison. It's, it's an electronic trap that's closed around your person. 
and don't be stupid and think that it isn't because when someone pops up in your real life that seems to know everything you've been doing for the last 40 minutes that is the kind of shit that happens okay they know what you've been doing for the last 40 minutes because that's when they got interested and then they'll move on to something else but because you're doing this and they're interested and they had access and they have the information they're gonna ask you about it in person like there's no boundaries and you're way 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 past what you can do about it at that point you just have to say I don't have to do this with you I don't answer to you who do you work for and you don't have to talk to them so if in fact that ever happens to you that's probably why there's somebody in tech who's like monitoring something following up on some bug or some text something or other and you know they've been following you for the last like mm, 40 minutes while they've been working on this problem okay and they're using uh, they're using and a, a really ridiculous amount of license to get there alright okay I said what I had to say I'm gonna I'm gonna read about a hacker who turned journalist um, which you know hacking doesn't solve everybody's problems but the point of this this is ethical hacking there is such a thing as ethical hacking and while it is invasive and embarrassing to to people who are in charge there is an accountability block on our government they don't want to fork over things like freedom of information act requests they have to be sued on a regular basis and when they don't comply and they obstruct and they stonewall well then occasionally you will get a hacktivist who might be interested in doing that it just so turns out WikiLeaks is one such institution that will receive cables from said hacktivist I'm sure by now everybody knows what a hacktivist is this is a story of Julian Assange who has been made an example of by the international community but this is his case so we're gonna resume chapter 6 the reading here we go just gonna log in here how's everybody doing had a nice uh, talk today with with mr. Fox he's the uh, executive producer for Res reservation dogs I never thought that that would happen but today was my lucky day here on Colin David Sachs was also in the room let's see here it was a good call it's a good call all right this is the trial of Julian Assange a story of persecution suppression of exculpatory evidence chapter 23 section 4 of the Swedish code of judicial procedure states at the preliminary investigation not only circumstances that are not in favor of the suspect but also circumstances in his favor shall be considered and any evidence favorable to the suspect shall be preserved in the light of this provision it is particularly revealing how the Swedish authorities suppressed or sidelined text messages sent by a and s the content of which is diametrically contradicts an official narrative disseminated by the authorities while it is on record that the text messages stored in the personal mobile phones of the two women were seized by the police for s on 10 September 2010 and for a on 27 January 2011 the messages were subsequently classified as secret by the prosecutor and not even handed over to Assange's defense attorneys the standard response of the prosecutor was that releasing the text messages would jeopardize the investigation it took more than a year for Assange's lawyers, Thomas Olson, Per Samuelson, to gain access to the messages, and even then, the modalities and restrictions imposed by the prosecutor were so prohibitive that the effective use of these messages as exculpatory evidence was rendered virtually impossible. On the 8th of December, 2011, Olson and Samuelson were invited to the office of the chief police investigator, Matt. Gellin to inspect several hundred printed messages as he had pre-selected from them from SS cell phone however there the two lawyers were not allowed to copy the messages to transcribe them by hand 
or to make any notes on their content except for the date and time they were sent or received. According to the prosecutor, these restrictions were necessary for reasons of data protection and privacy, rights to which the Swedish authorities attach considerably less importance vis-a-vis Assange. This led to the bizarre situation that in a modern democracy like Sweden, Assange's attorneys were forced to memorize exculpatory text messages and try to write down their content immediately afterwards, naturally without being able to reproduce the exact wording in every case. In view of these difficulties, the precision of their transcripts, some of which I have been able to compare with original sources, is remarkable. Even four years later, on 16 July 2014, Assange's lawyers were prohibited from filing a printed copy of these messages as evidence to the Swedish District Court on the grounds that they had been classified by the prosecution authority. The same pretext for suppressing text messages was given and accepted at the Court of Appeal. In consequence, even the Swedish judges tasked with deciding on the extension of the arrest warrant against Assange were not given access to these text messages and so had to reach their verdict on relying on unverifiable claims of the prosecution. One does not need to be a law professor to understand that tactics such as these severely undermine due process safeguards and fair trial guarantees. It was only in 2019 after their investigation had been reopened for the third time that the Swedish prosecution authority produced an official English translation of those text messages from S's mobile phone, which it, it, it acknowledged to be relevant for the investigation. However, from the index numbers of the listed messages, it can be seen that there are numerous gaps where one or several messages were withheld. More importantly, 12 messages sent or received by S between 2.32 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. on 20 August, index 3994-4005, are missing. This is precisely the period when S was at the police station and very upset about the rape narrative imposed on her. Mentioned earlier, we know from the transcripts made by Assange's lawyers in 2011 from S's own testimony during her second police interview of 2nd September 2010, that S sent a message to A at 5.06 p.m., expressing her shock at the news about the arrest warrant. Despite its obvious importance for Assange's defense, this message was deliberately suppressed by the Swedish prosecution authority. There is a second particularly significant gap of 66 messages sent or received from 7.36 a.m. on 21 of August, when the women started exchanging messages expressing strong disagreement with the official rape narrative published in the media until 3.31 p.m. on the 23rd of August when the women finally had been assigned a legal counsel fiercely promoting the precisely that narrative index 4018-4083. By deliberately withholding exculpatory or mitigating evidence, the Swedish authorities not only violated Assange's procedural rights as set out in the Swedish Code of Judicial Procedure, but in conjunction with their aggressive dissemination of the rape allegations, may have even committed the criminal offense of false accusation. Wow. Headline, Julian Assange hounded on suspicion of of rape. But Friday, 20, August 2010, the day of the women's visit to the police station is not over yet. Even in the evening, a journalist who was attending a crayfish party in the inner circle of Sweden's political leadership at the time learns of the arrest warrant against Assange on probable cause of rape. It is not known who leaked the information and whether it was leaked directly to the journalist or whether the police or prosecution authority informally alerted key figures in the political leadership who then tipped off the journalist at the party. Either way, the circle of small possible culprits for the original leak is small. Small. The journalist immediately passes the information on to a colleague at the tabloid Expressen, and Expressen does what any tabloid paper would do. They call the prosecutor, Maria Haljevo Kjellstrand, and that same Friday evening, it is true that she has issued an arrest warrant against Julian Assange. The inconceivable happens. Kjellstrand loquaciously confirms to Expressen 
not only that an arrest warrant has been issued against Assange, but also that there is probable cause of rape involving two victims. Has she spoken to the women? No, she has not. Nor does she know when the rape complaint was made. She herself received it from the police just an hour ago. No, she has no idea where Assange is and whether he is being searched for, but she hopes and assumes that this is the case. Having said all that, Kjellstrand then concludes that in consideration of all those involved, she can say, quote, absolutely nothing about the case at this time. Express and further specifies that the women allegedly did not want to file a criminal complaint. The women are scared to death and therefore do not dare to cooperate. In this case, the police believe that their reason for their fear is the position of power of the perpetrator. And so, with the stroke of a pen, the nonviolent suspect has become a menacing, menacing perpetrator. Oh! No mention of mere suspicion, no hint of the presumption of innocence, and, above all, no resemblance to what the women had reported to have experienced. Another source described by Expressin as a person close to the women seemed to have great have a great deal of detailed knowledge namely that the alleged victims were aged between 20 and 30 that they know each other and that one of the alleged offenses was committed on a Tuesday morning in Enkoping and the other in the previous weekend in an apartment in Sodermal to make matters worse, two days later, on Monday, 23rd of August, the police releases their part of the investigative case file to the Swedish press in a prompt response. In a prompt request, wait, wait, wait. I was in prompt response to a Freedom of Information Act request. Okay, 39-page fax sent to between 4:28 and 4:30 p.m. Includes the original summaries of the interviews with S from page 7 and from A, page 18. While sensitive information has been largely redacted, the police have failed to redact A's name and surname from the title of her interview summary, thus revealing her full identity to the press. But the publication of all of this information now also makes it impossible for S to remain anonymous, and soon the identities of both women are common knowledge. The Swedish authorities know, of course, that their indiscretion will expose both Assange and the two women to a relentless media circus and needlessly undermine the objectivity of the investigation. However, neither the privacy or, and protection of the individuals concerned nor the effectiveness of the investigation seem to be a priority for the officials in charge. Water. According to Sven-Erik Alham, former chief prosecutor and director of public prosecution in Stockholm and Malmö. The authorities in discretion clearly violated the applicable Swedish Secrecy Act according to which the identity of those involved in, in a preliminary investigation must be kept confidential unless and until charges are brought. The same opinion is shared by Brita Sundberg Weitman former law professor, appeal judge, and president of Solna District Court, who, like Alham, sorry, has written an expert report for Assange's defense lawyers detailing some of the most notorious due process violations that have tarnished the Swedish preliminary investigation against him. The legal situation is clear. The Swedish authorities violated not only their specific duty of confidentiality, but also their general duty of care as expressly set out in Chapter 23 of the Swedish Code of Judicial Procedure. The investigation should be conducted so that no person is unnecessarily exposed to suspicion or put to unnecessary expense or inconvenience. From the start, the authorities themselves seriously undermine the objectivity and effectiveness of the investigation. They publicly disclosed Assange's identity without any evidence for his criminal culpability without any imminent danger or temporal urgency, without having formally interviewed either the suspect or the alleged victims, and without any consideration for the harm likely to result from their indiscretion to everyone involved. This course of action also disproved the credibility of their purported justification for the arrest warrant, namely that Assange was a flight risk. Had such a risk really existed, no prosecutor in their right mind would have publicly announced the arrest warrant in the mass media thus giving the suspect an advance warning 
he could not possibly miss. Unless, of course, their real intention was to provoke Assange's flight as a means of obtaining probative evidence for his culpability. In any case, neither prosecutor Kjellstrand nor anyone else was ever held accountable for a breach of duty, nor were any disciplinary measures taken. A complaint was reportedly filed with the Swedish Ombudsman for the Judiciary, who, once again, swiftly found a boilerplate excuse for evading his official responsibilities. This time he reportedly did not wish to interfere with an ongoing proceeding. Given that all judiciary really does is to conduct investigative and judicial proceedings, it is really rather hard to conceive of a case where the Ombudsman could exercise effective parliamentary oversight over the judiciary without interfering with an ongoing investigation or proceeding. As already demonstrated in the cases of Inspector Kranz and the unlawful rendition of Agisa and Alciri, the Ombudsman's record of ex post facto investigating and confronting official misconduct does not seem any brighter, at least not when overriding national security interests are involved. Early on Saturday, 21 tw August 2010, the day after the police interview around 5 a.m., Expressen's headline reads, WikiLeaks, Julian Assange hounded on suspicion of, of rape in Sweden. Within minutes, the news rockets around the world. Assange himself learns it from the press and reacts at 9.15 a.m. on the Twitter channel of WikiLeaks. We were warned to expect dirty tricks. Now we see the first one. By now, at the latest, the two women must have understood that the control over their own story had been snatched from them. Within less than 24 hours, their attempt to use the police to pressure Assange into taking an HIV test had backfired and triggered an avalanche of unforeseen events that could no longer be stopped. The SMS correspondence of the two women bear witness to the tremendous pressure they suddenly find themselves exposed to. Already at 7.09 on Saturday morning, S writes to a friend, I feel awful. It's already in the news, even though it was supposed to be confidential. I have to choose a lawyer. A reputable name, criminal lawyer, preferably a man, the police said. Help! And then, when asked what was in the press, she writes, that one of the offenses was committed in Nkaping. Bloody police. It was supposed to be confidential, and, and we said we didn't want to submit a report. Almost simultaneously comes a text message whose sender is blacked out, but which only A could have written. It's the media now. Check out Expressin. Bloody hell. I don't know what to do other than be quiet and turn off my phone. S replies at 7.33 a.m. I know I'm in total panic. Fuck, I don't want this to be part of this. I wish I could flee the country. A replies at 7.36. Take it easy, dear. No one knows you're involved, right? As indicated earlier, the next 36, next 66 text messages sent or received by X, S, sorry, some of which provided clear evidence for S's disagreement with the official narrative imposed on her, have been deliberately withheld from Assange's defense lawyers by the Swedish prosecution authority. The official trail of messages picks up only 57 hours later. Once the two women have been assigned, a legal counsel bent on aggressively pursuing precisely that narrative. A small number of messages transcribed by Assange's lawyers nevertheless testified to the fundamental transformation of attitude forced onto A and S during this period of radio silence. Not surprisingly, after the initial shock, the two women soon realize they have no choice but to come to terms with a new reality. On Saturday evening, 21 August at 10.25 p.m., S still complains in a transcribed text message that it was the police that, who made up the charges. But by Monday morning, 23rd August, her tone has changed. Again, according to the lawyer's own transcription, at 6.43 a.m., A wrote to S that it was important that she, S, went public with her story so that they could mobilize public opinion for their case. Then, on Thursday, 26th August, 1.38 p.m., A suggested to S that they ought to sell their stories to a newspaper and on 28 August, 12.53 p.m., reported that they had a contact with the largest Swedish tabloid. God. S. reportedly replies on the same day at 3.59 p.m. that their lawyer was negotiating with a tabloid. Caution should be exercised when interpreting this co correspondence. Given the circumstances, I do not believe the motivation for these me messages 
was primarily monetary, but rather that they reflect a desperate attempt by the women to somehow keep the upper hand in a situation where they had already been effectively stripped of all influence and control, a common compensatory pattern shown by people who have been cornered. Given the scandalous headlines and the official confirmation given by the authorities, a differentiated account of what the women had experienced with Julian Assange was no longer possible. In the eyes of the broader public, Assange was either a rapist or he had been falsely accused. There was no longer any space for gray zones, for misunderstandings, for accidents, or for alternative explanations. A and S had to choose. Would they jump on the bandwagon of the official rape narrative or, and in return, be able to count on the full support of the public authorities? Or would they challenge the official rape narrative, inevitably raising questions as to why they had visited the police station in the first place and possibly inviting criminal complaints for false accusations or defamation, as well as financial claims? In the latter case, the two women would, ha would have to face not only the wrath of Assange and his devoted entourage, of which they themselves had been an integral part just 24 hours earlier, but they would also be abandoned by the Swedish authorities and exposed to severe criticism by the press, if not the entire world. When evaluating the behavior and statements of A and S, therefore, due consideration must always be given to the fact that, through no fault of their own, they have been under enormous pressure to conform to the official rape narrative ever since he first expressed in headlines and until today. Accordingly, from this point on, the women's original concern, the HIV test, all but disappears, even in their private text messages and correspondence. Their primary trauma now no longer seems to be a possible HIV infection, but the relentless media hype and the threats and abuse they receive on social media. Had the authorities complied with their duty of confidentiality as required by Swedish law, this investigation would have disappeared into the archives of the Swedish Protection Authority after only a few days. But that was not what the Swedish authorities appeared to have in mind. The Questioning of A Just a few hours after the express in shock, on Saturday 21 August at 11.31 a.m., the first formal police interview of A takes place by phone. This is an important detail because the initial questioning of a possible rape victim should never be conducted on the phone. It is not only a matter of reliably identifying the person being questioned, but also of being able to identify and address situations of anxiety or distress, which may not be expressed verbally, but rather through the body language, facial expressions, and gestures. It must have been clear to the police that A was under intense pressure at the time of the interview and could not be properly questioned over the phone. By this point, the authorities had already informed the whole world in no uncertain terms how her experience with Assange was to be legally categorized. Rape, alternatively, sexual harassment were the crimes were referenced at the top of the interview summary, written by Inspector Sarah Winterblum. Just as with S, the initial interview of A is not witnessed by a second officer and is not recorded on tape but is merely summarized by the questioning inspector in her own words. This is clearly contrary to the standard professional practice as it makes impossible to verify whether the initial testimonies used against the suspect have been influenced by leading questions or implicit expectations. An unfortunate coincidence? No, because this is exactly how the police will proceed for the initial questioning of all seven witnesses who are either friends or relatives of the women and therefore likely to be supportive of them. None of these statements are made in the presence of a second police officer, none of them are recorded on tape, and none are reproduced verbatim, but merely summarized in the words of the interviewing officer. As the police are very well aware, these witnesses perceive the authorities as acting in the interest of the two women, and so are unlikely to question or correct the precise manner or wording in which their statements are summarized by the interviewing officer. Conversely, Assange's own interview is conducted by the book in the presence of a second police officer, is duly recorded on tape, and reproduced verbatim. Assange, of course, is unlikely to accept a freely paraphrased summary of his statement, and he is accompanied by his defense lawyer, who gives the authorities no wiggle room. Likewise, the interviews of Donald Ballstrom, 
and Johannes Wallstrom are both conducted in the presence of a second police officer recorded on tape and reproduced in their original wording. Bostrom and Wallstrom are both experienced journalists who have a neutral attitude towards the involved parties, choose their words carefully, and insist on their verbatim recording. A herself does not contradict Inspector Winterblom's summary of her statement. As noted earlier, she is convinced that Assange intentionally ripped his condom during sexual intercourse. She clearly acknowledges, however, that this is not only an assumption that she did not see Assange actually ripping the condom and that she has not even verified whether the condom, which she still has in her possession at her home, really was damaged. In the police summary of her statement, A further affirms that Assange initially, that is, before their sexual intercourse, prevented her from reaching for a condom by holding her arms and prying over her legs while trying to penetrate her without a condom. But then after a moment, Assange asks A what she's doing and why she's squeezing her legs together. A then told him that she wanted to wear a condom before he came in her. At that, Assange released A arms and put on a condom that A fetched for him. The telephone interview of A ends at 12.20 p.m. Just three and a half hours later, at 3.55, another major Swedish newspaper, Aftonbladet, publishes an interview with A in which she partially corrects the Expressen article. It is absolutely wrong to say that we did not want to report Assange because we were afraid of him. He is not violent, and I don't feel threatened by him. A emphasizes that she sees herself as a victim of sexual coercion or harassment, but not of rape. Contrary to S's own testimony and text messages, however, A consistently claims that S wanted to file a criminal report for rape while A had merely accompanied her in order to support S with her own testimony. According to A, the allegations against Assange were not orchestrated by the Pentagon, of course, but were the responsibility of a man with distorted image of women and difficulties taking no for an answer. However, at least according to the written summary of her police interview given earlier that morning, Assange made sexual advances to her every day after the evening when they had sex, and A had rejected him on every such occasion which Assange had accepted in each case, that is, to say her no. The first continu discontinuation of investigation. Barely half an hour after A's interview with Afton Blodet, the case takes another dramatic turn. The Swedish Attorney General, concerned that the case was too sensitive to be left to a duty prosecutor's care until Monday, transmits the written summaries of the two police interviews to Eva Fine, Chief Prosecutor for Stockholm for review. Fine reacts quickly around 4.30 on a Saturday afternoon. She cancels the arrest warrant issued by Kjellstrand and the evening before and releases a press statement. I do not believe that there is any reason to suspect him of rape. Given that the prosecution authority had already caused a worldwide media flurry by publicly confirming both arrest warrant against Assange and the probable cause of rape, Fine must have been very confident in her assessment to perform such a rapid and dramatic U-turn. She knew, of course, that her decision was sure to be painstakingly scrutinized by powerful stakeholders with vested interests. Therefore, based on the original summaries of the police interviews with A and S, it must have been plainly evident to any experienced prosecutor that the crime of rape, as defined in the Swedish Criminal Code in 2010, could be excluded in both cases. For the time being, Finney does not want to rule out sexual harassment in either case, but this reduces the minimum sentence below the threshold of one year's imprisonment, which is generally required for an arrest warrant. In the case of S. Finney even proceeds to drop the investigation altogether only a few days later, on the 25th of August, 2010. The official press release reads, As previously announced, the information obtained from interviewing S. is such that the suspicion of rape no longer exists. This does not mean that I do not believe her statements. I have studied the content of the interview to see whether there is any suspicion of another offense, 
primarily harassment or sexual harassment, but my analysis shows that this is not the case. The investigation is therefore closed as far as this complaint is concerned, as there is no suspicion of a crime. The communique includes by affirming that, in the case of A, the suspicion of molestation remains. I will instruct the investigator to re interview the suspect. Finney's impending discontinuation of S's case had become foreseeable with her lifting of the arrest warrant over the weekend. Accordingly, on Monday, 23rd August, S's text messages begin to express growing concern. Already during her interview on Friday evening, the police had recommended that she take a lawyer, a reputable name, a criminal defense lawyer, preferably a man. Now, on Monday, S and A will be assigned a legal counsel fitting this description perfectly. Clay's Borgstrom is an ambitious lawyer who has earned his political credentials as the Swedish government's equality ombudsman and is standing for the Social Democratic Party in the upcoming parliamentary elections of September 2010. However, earlier that year he had received disastrous press coverage and later would be even subjected to ultimately inconsequential disciplinary investigation by the Swedish Bar Association for his controversial role as defense counsel in what has been described as the biggest judicial scandal in Swedish history. Borgstrom's client, Sture Bergwall, aka Thomas Quick, a drug-addicted psychiatric patient, had voluntarily confessed to 33 unresolved murders, each of which he had it later transpired read about in the newspapers. He was convicted in eight cases and considered the biggest serial killers in Sweden. Despite the lack of reliable evidence and motives, the credibility of Quick's confessions was never questioned by the police, the prosecutor of the courts, and not even by Borgstrom, his own defense counsel. In a spooky preview of what was to come in the Assange investigation, police interviews were manipulated and contradictory or exculpatory evidence was suppressed in order to support the authorities' preferred narrative of Quick as a mentally deranged serial killer. It took a ninth murder prosecution, the tireless work of an investigative journalist, Hannes Rostam, and the sober eye of an experienced chief prosecutor, Eva Finney, to expose and terminate this grotesque travesty of justice in May of 2010. As a result, Bergwall withdrew all his fantasized confessions, replaced his defense counsel, was acquitted on all counts, and after 20 years of confinement, was released on as an innocent man. Clearly, this outcome was bad press for Borgstrom and bad news for his political ambitions. In August of 2010, then, he urgently needed a high-profile case with which to rehabilitate and polish his reputation with a view to upcoming parliamentary elections, which were just weeks away. The Assange case with Chief Prosecutor Eva Finne on the opposing end must have been a perfect match. On the Monday following the Friday police interview, 23rd of August 2010, at 4.31 p.m., S. sends the following text, text message. Clay's Borgstrom is my lawyer now. Hope he can help me get out of this shit. In Sweden, it's standard practice for the state to assign a public legal counsel to alleged crime victims at least in more complex cases. Invited by the court to comment on Borgstrom's request, Chief Prosecutor Finney only writes, I have no objections to the appointment of legal counsel in the injured party. This is justified in view of mass media attention. End quote. Finney's unequivocal abandonment of the rape narrative must have been deeply unsettling to the two women. After all, only 24 hours earlier, the same rape narrative had been forcefully imposed on them at the Clara police station, only after having been dismissed by another police officer via telephone a few hours earlier. Given this dizzying back and forth, the women cannot be blamed for being confused. For them, however, the primary burden does not appear to be any alleged misconduct by Assange, but their unwarranted public exposure in conjunction with uncertainty resulting from the constantly changing official narrative. Tellingly, in her text message, S does not express the hope that Borgstrom will help her obtain justice or to make Assange take an HIV test, but that he will get her out of this shit. 
given that both criminal reports falsely state that it was the women who, on their own initiative, filed a criminal complaint against Assange, they may also have become worried about a possible complaint against them for false accusation, defamation, and other legal claims relating to reputational damage. On Monday, 23rd of August, Inspector Matt Gelhan, to whom the case had just been assigned, writes a memo stating that, in S's case, the elements of rape are fulfilled. However, in A's case, he notes that there might be a deception, and that it is unclear whether there is any offense at all. The reason for this assumption is redacted. Exactly one week later, on 30 August, Chief Prosecutor Eva Finney issues an order stating that the criminal complaint for false accusation will not be acted upon for lack of sufficient evidence of the crime. The complaint was submitted the day after the Express and Headline, Sunday 22 of August, and assigned the file number belonging to the preliminary investigation against Assange. The Swedish authorities have not disclosed who had lodged the complaint and against whom. Still, on that Monday in the afternoon, following the following text messages are exchanged between S and a friend. Quote, no, my lawyer takes care of everything, so I can't comment. We will try to work this week, end quote. Unfortunately, we were, are not told what exactly, sorry, what exactly S cannot comment on. The immediately preceding text message, index 4087, has been picked out and suppressed by the Swedish prosecution authority. In any case, her friend writes back, oh, you've sued him, that's great. <laughs> I, uh, I hope the swine gets what he deserves. S replies, no, the police got it all started. I didn't want to be part of it, but now I have no choice. There really is no better way to explain the coercion of the two women into conforming with the official rape narrative than through these desperate words sent out by S that afternoon. And I really need to stop it there. It's been 47 minutes. This is the longest chapter ever. I'm so glad that there's there's uh, two people with me. We've got Blotty and Charlie. Um... So, uh, if you would like to jump up and say something before we get out of here, I heard Charlie in a in a cast earlier today. It's really great. Uh, let's see, go ahead and take Bloody. Hey, Bloody, good to hear from you. How you doing? How you doing? Hey, I like your new your new not emoji. It's what a, is it? it's yeah. it's a profile it pic. It's like both pro baby and um, pro, you know, women's rights. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was in in awareness to cancer the this at uh, the end of the month. I think I don't uh, know. Pink has month, all these uh, like as, these associations with it. So well, anyway, what you're telling me is what I what I saw in that video, that interview with Jordan Peterson and the Stella. Mm -hmm. Assange, you're just telling me in a different matter, but it's basically the same thing. This guy has been set up. They know they have no laws to go against them. And I don't know why these organizations are not standing up. They are, um, they are being twisted by the national security state. And they, they, you know, they could manufacture the very, any kind of situation but they intended to criminalize him from the from the get. That's what we've been reading. No wonder they got rid of uh, Greenwall. He, he wrote the Citizen Four, right? But then they, the Guardian just used the works of, uh, of, of, of Julian Assange, and then they, they, they got rid of him. That's sick. They're sick. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a really strong entrenchment of of really evil corrupt forces they want to make other people pay for their evil deeds so that they can continue to stay in, in respective power i don't know why they even want the power because they're not using it for anything decent they're just using it to aggrandize themselves you know they but they don't think like that they think like to control to control, to subvert, to control, manipulate, and control. Well, I mean, remember what Carl. Remember what Carl. What Carl Schwab said: "You will own nothing and be happy." 
Really? So he determines my life now? That hey, buddy, is... just cut out. Come back. Come back, my friend. If you can hear me, let me know. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Okay. All right, so you're back. Go ahead and can you tell us the last two sentences, two, three sentences you wanted to share? Their end goal is to control us. Their end goal is to keep us under fear. That's why they want to use the socialist system and they want to and break any whistleblower that will go against their system as a precedent so nobody does it goes against them. This is wrong. Yeah, it's been going on a long time. They need too. to be incarcerated. I mean, he's been in he's been in prison for over ten years now. I mean, respectively, ambiguously imprisoned uh, for for over ten years, and he's he's being um, held in a legally gray confinement. And for what was we were covering that at the beginning? For what he is being imprisoned is is his sentence far exceeded you know the, the capture of, of Julian Assange has far exceeded any uh, any actual prosecutable crime and so I think they should just let him go I'm not a lawyer but this man who is a UN rapporteur on torture and ill treatment that's the, this is the testimony of this man and I'm not saying it's being thrown in the garbage but this is his forensic audit of the situation of Julian Assange. And it's it's really eye-opening how, how awful, I mean, and how extensive the national security state went after this man. And honestly, uh, you know, similar things also happened. And uh, one of the things that, that was... Uh, I don't know. I'll just admit it. The government terrorized me with the over-prosecution of uh, Aaron Schwartz. I couldn't think of any anyone more innocent and less prosecutable in in reality than than Aaron Schwartz. But because of the evils and the hubris that you know, Barack Obama and the people that he installed underneath him were allowed to indulge. Um, very evil things happened under the tutelage of, of Eric Holder and with his, um, his secret service, the judicial limits of, of his secret service, Obama's secret service. I was so glad when he left office. I, f I remember what I was doing. I was standing up in my living room yelling at the TV, you cannot get the fuck out quick enough. You cannot leave fast enough, Obama. Get your shit and get out. Because of what had happened to people who just wanted civil liberty to be reorganized towards towards the norms okay this new normal that everybody seems to be enjoying on the left you know they don't benefit like they think they do unless they're working in tech unless they're working in tech and that's who is benefiting they got a lot of contracts and they got a lot of corporatist money and that slid towards them because of Obama and you know that's what made it their while you know that's what made it worth their while you know coming in, into the snake grip of the of the state department of the national security state being used uh, by the department of defense and um, the clandestine end of our government okay that that all ended up in in the pocket in their money pocket for them and the american people unfortunately were run rough shot over okay so what we got afterwards was you know a glut of antitrust that nobody in Congress seemingly wanted to go after but you know after Trump got in there antitrust became a vanguard to answer 
to some of the claims. There was the USA Freedom Act, and that was a, a partial victory, but the rubber stamping of the FISA problem, you know, because it became an ego issue for, for Trump. I have to, to, to explain this in the rear view, but, but Trump could have stopped all this, but he thought it was cool. He thought it was really cool that anyone in America could be surveilled and, and drilled down on by the, the U.S. federal government without necessarily a warrant. He thought it was super cool. And unfortunately, because he didn't mind the regards, he wasn't either, either he wasn't educated enough, which is possible because he's a businessman, uh, but he did not mind this, the, the average civil liberties that you and I should be enjoying right now. And so now he's on the, on the shit end of the stick with the FBI. If Trump were to remain in power illegally to clean up all of this, I would have been for him. But Trump was a nice guy to the point where he was stupefied. I'm sorry to say it. I liked him, but I've seen there's things that he just either overlooked or played along, and that's not right. Yeah, and I think he conceded. In the end, he conceded more than he needed to to Christopher Ray, he, he, I don't know, when he started firing people in the, in the security state, they went ape. They went absolutely ape. And I'm thinking he can fight, he can fire more. Why does he, why doesn't he put them in a corner? Like he's the boss and he has the right to fire whomever. And, rev- I mean, and revoke, their you quotes, have to do revoke it. all of their, their special privileges. I mean, he could have stripped them of citizenship. In some cases, he could have started a treason trial on some of them, but he didn't do that. Okay, that's he's not me. And even if he was advised in, in some cases on such things, people in Washington give each other a pass for illegal shit all day long. They do it all day long. This is so wrong. We need a turnover. I don't know if the DeSantis will be able to clean up anything. This thing is far gone. We just got to disband all these uh, groups, uh, FBI, NSA, it everything has to, has to be redone. You're right. And they need to. Re- all of it. Special, yeah, everything. Snowden has to be brought, pardoned, and allowed a special position to deal with this evil. So um, Jonathan's popped back in and he's gone again. But I wanted to read a few comments that he left. He says, the law only punches down. They were Boy Scouts. Better to have power and not need it than to need it and not have it. And um, so I'm really glad you, you are are with us today, Vladdy. I, I can't say that it's a, it's a full room, but. <laughs> no, well, it, it, it sucks when I'm not around because I miss <laughs> you and I really want to hear you. And now I see is. There was an episode from Unsanctioned Citizen. I'm like, oh, shit. Why didn't I know? What's going on? Somebody's keeping me away from Shayla. <laughs> well, I mean, you know? don't forget, you can mm-hmm. always catch up, you know, because you're a subscriber, right? If you're a subscriber, you can always get access to the episodes once they're published. Uh, you'll get notifications uh, that I'm going on the air, and uh, and I'll, I will put you in an alert. Oh, real quickly, before I leave, and this is over. How do you feel about the Penguin Hangout going oh, live? Oh my gosh, that was great. I was in there for a short while. I congratulated them on the ability to, to have a video platform element. I don't think I'm reg- ready to go full like, hey, everybody see me. I'm not, I'm not ready for that. But um, but if I if I do, I'll, I'll try to figure something out. I'll try to figure something out. To, to them, not you, to them, I said... I like you more in the cartoon superhero. <laughs> actually, character. I actually kind of <laughs> like their avatars. They're super creative, and um, but seeing them in person is also interesting too. You know, it's you know, it's what I thought it would be. It's guys on the internet staring into their phone cameras, and uh, you know, good or bad, that's that's wow. the look you get. And at least they were cleaned up relatively. Um, you know, I, I don't have any negative. I mean, I gotta admit, I don't have anything so, negative to say. They're 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 people that have contributed a, really good uh-huh. conversation, and you can learn a lot from the Penguin Hangout. Uh, keep going and and keep learning. 
real, real quickly, my critique, some of the guys look like Duck Dynasty, young, <laughs> younger version, and I expected more from Madison. I expected more from Madison. You mean Madison. more picture or more like, comments? Like, what, what did you expect exactly? I I really had a, a look. You see, in her picture, she looks she looks like a hot mama. Okay. And when I saw her, when I saw her up front, I was like, uh, 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 uh. I was like, oh shit, no. She makes a lot of racket. I thought she was this number ten out there. Like, she's just I was a like, oh weenie. shit. She's like a little, little thin, I know. like little teeny weeny, <laughs> and she's young, you know. Yeah. But it's okay. I mean, people, people always it's dress up women in their mind. Um, and I'll probably disappoint mm-hmm. somebody if I ever get on camera. They'll be like, she's not a model. Why can't you look like Giselle, you troll? <laughs> Bad. Get your hair did. Okay, Bloody, it's been an hour. I got I to gotta cut it at that. Thank you All for right. joining the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Come back anytime. You're yeah. always welcome Take- here. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio Podcasts, and Call In. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.